After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Welcome to another episode of the David and Goliath podcast. I'm attorney Matt Dolman, managing partner of the Dolman Law Group with offices throughout the state of Florida. Today, I have an esteemed guest. I have Casey Gard. Casey, I don't know the best way to describe you, and I want to kind of give you a, I know your history. I could probably give a great introduction. I just don't want to sell you short. So are you Bobby Axelrod from Billions? Like what, take me through your history and what are you, and how would you describe yourself? Because I know what you do now but what brought you to where you are today? Sure. So I've, thank you for having uh, me on, Matt. I appreciate that. Of course. And I've spent call of 30 plus years in the finance arena. Mm -hmm. First part of my career, I spent just shy of 10 years at Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. Morgan Stanley, I started as an equity research analyst and then moved up to the trading business. My last role at Morgan Stanley was overseeing all of the equity trading and risk for the firm in all of the non-US markets. Okay. I left in 1999 and started my own investment management company. Main product there was a equity long short fund investing in European and UK companies. Managed that for 15 years. We had a good lucky and successful run at it, net double digit annualized returns to investors. You know, on average, we were managing a portfolio of billions of dollars. And like I said, we had a, a good run at it. On our 15-year anniversary, decided to return investor capital, and we converted to a single-family office. That was nine years ago. The last nine years, we have increasingly been investing in a number of private companies. We currently have investments in, I believe, 16 or 17 private companies. We still have the vehicle to invest in the public markets on behalf of internal capital or family capital. Honestly, the investing in the public markets and the stock markets has become a de minimis portion of my professional existence, mm -hmm. which is incredible given that I spent 20 to 25 years looking at eight to 10 monitors every day, watching asset prices go like this all day. And it's actually kind of liberating not having that anymore. And then Five plus years ago, came across an opportunity really by happenstance where we started a litigation finance business. And that has taken on a lot, all of my focus, primarily because I'm incredibly intrigued with the risk reward profile. But it's also an opportunity where you are, at least from the lens that we're going at it and investing and funding. It gives us an opportunity to invest in cases where folks have been tragically injured, folks that are veterans, folks that have maybe lost their homes in storms. So I don't want to kid anybody. We fund and that's a business and we invest and that's a business. It's, it's not a charity, but the types of cases that we're investing in gives you a real good feeling about being involved aside from the business aspect of it. So that's a little bit about my history. The area of litigation finance that we focus on is what we call, say, high-value personal injury litigation. Generally, the cases that we look at when we're talking about single cases, 
those will be cases that start in recovery value at say seven figures and then go up into the tens of millions of dollars. Sure. And then in addition to that, you know, we'll, we'll look at portfolios of cases, a first party litigation, insurance funding, and then some mass litigation is also something that we've got involved with in a pretty significant way as well. So we're going to tackle the subject of third-party litigation funding today. And I know you said it's a business. It's not necessarily done for altruistic purposes. But at the same point, you are providing a, it is really an altruistic purpose. You're providing access to the courts for those who might otherwise have that access. And what most folks don't understand, especially the assholes at the Defense Research Institute and the Chamber of Commerce, who are our two biggest enemies and the enemies of third-party litigation funding is, we are facing off against corporate behemoths, the biggest giants out there. The argument and the criticism out there is this. I say an article earlier today, which is kind of a cataclysmic of, of what much of the criticism is. Let's say you, Casey Guard, or through priority responsible legal funding or Burford Capital, any of these big companies out there, they fund not one single claim, but buy a number of assets. So they fund a portfolio. And what they're trying to argue, I guess, and this is a Defense Research Institute through two of their studies, is that through that portfolio, a number of awful claims, meritless claims, claims that have very minimal value are suddenly being funded. The counter to that, you can argue it's much better than I can, but at least I'm trying with my public school education to make this sound as good as possible. Those claims will never survive. The company will never survive. A funding company is never going to make it if they're just funding claims that are never going to work. So 90, 95% of your claims are going to be fruitful recoveries. Otherwise, you're not funding claims that otherwise have no potential. This isn't pre-settlement funding. This is funding lawsuits. This is funding lawyers. This is funding the ability to access the court, is the ability to hire experts, the ability to uh, go toe-to-toe with the insurance companies or the biggest giants out there. Am I correct or am I wrong? I would agree with you. And thank you for keeping it on my public school education level. I appreciate that. Well, you said it last night to me. So tongue in cheek, Casey says to me last night when I, well, <laughs> a couple of nights ago when I asked him to be a guest is, are you sure you want to have me if you're public school education knowing full well that you know, I'm a public school graduate? Casey's probably the brightest guy that I know. He likes to be very humble. But yeah, answer. What do you think? Sure. So in terms of your question when you're in this business or you're funding cases that might not necessarily have a leg to stand on if we weren't involved. And I would disagree with that, or I would say that's not really the business that we're involved with. In our personal injury litigation funding business, the area where we will originate, underwrite, and service those fundings is a business by the name Priority Responsible Funding. I have a partner in that business, Brett Findler. Brett and his brother Lloyd oversee the underwriting for us in that business. And in that business, there's four full-time attorneys in-house. So the underwriting that's done is done by a team of four attorneys that between them have 100 years of experience as trial attorneys. So that's not to say that we have the best attorneys in the country or the worst, but I would say that our underwriting team has as much experience within the space as most. And what does that mean? I think that means that we sift through the cases pretty well and, and avoid funding cases that don't you know, have much merit to them. And we look to avoid those situations. There is a factor you know, that we monitor in terms of the amount of cases that come in for funding on the single cases that we turn down. And we turn down, I would say, less than industry average, but there's a reason for that. We turn down 
call it 20, 20%, 25% of the cases that come in. But the reason why that's a low number is that business is not attempting to be a mass market funder. You're not going to see us advertising on billboard and looking to fund every single case in the country that has a pulse. We are focused on working with lawyers and law firms that are the highest quality lawyers and law firms because the thought we have is those are the firms that attract the high quality cases. Mm -hmm. And because there's a lot of experience practicing as attorneys in-house, there's a lot of significant relationships. There's a foundation of relationships that stretches across, at this point, 28 states. So I would say the types of cases that we are funding are a function of our existing relationships, our presence in the business at a, a level of law firms and lawyers that tend to breed high value cases that have significant merit to them. And that's how we've looked to avoid the so-called frivolous lawsuits. I think any of us who grew up in a household that did not have an attorney, you know, you probably heard terms like ambulance chaser and frivolous lawsuits. And I'm not as naive to say that there's not bad actors in every industry. There is bad actors in every industry, and there's going to be some characters in, in every industry. But the types of cases, the types of lawyers and law firms that we're working with, I think we do a fairly decent job to avoid those types of cases that you were referencing earlier. Sure. Knowing your company very well, um, intimately, it's a who's who list of uh, some of the heavyweights and the titans of the trial bar and some of the best mass tort lawyers who also hand in hand. Some of them are also big single event lawyers handling car, truck accident, motorcycle accident. So yeah, that criticism doesn't really hold much weight. A bigger criticism, I think it was a Law Journal article I sent you, was a, a term of art they coined called social inflation. Basically, the lawyer is de-incentivized from settling a claim because of the high interest rates due to the loan. I can give you my thoughts, which I will. I'm going to piggyback on what you're going to say first. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Is the lawyer answering to the lender or the answering to the client? Does it slow down cases? Sure. What are your thoughts on that? So in our funding business, which as you pointed out earlier, a higher degree of our capital goes to the law firms. And the use of that capital is for case costs. The, the most common case costs that we see it going towards is the use of expert witnesses. When we do fund plaintiffs as well, the vast majority of that capital goes towards their medical needs. You know, I mentioned high value personal injury cases. Those usually have significant injuries. An example might be, you know, traumatic brain injury shows up in our portfolio fairly often. And listen, to treat someone at a newer rehab institute while they're going through this litigation could run $100,000 a month. And, and most people can't afford that. A lot more than that. Shepherd Center is $400,000 a month. Yeah, sure. So that's an example of where our capital is going when we're funding plaintiffs. But back to your question and the article that you had sent me, the first point, I was actually a little confused because. The comment in the article about that the attorney is incentivized not to settle and go to trial because of the high interest rates, I would think that if someone has high rates on capital that they're borrowing, they're actually incentivized to settle quickly so that the interest doesn't keep accumulating. So I was a little confused by the comment in that article. But that said, I went and looked the term social inflation in that article. Mm -hmm. I went and looked and, and I saw that that was derived originally from Warren Buffett made that comment. And listen, we all know Warren Buffett has been a uber successful investor. 
But at the same time, the defendants in most of the cases that you know you and I might be involved with are the insurance companies. And last I looked, Warren Buffett actually owned Geico. He owned General Reed. So I think he was coining a phrase, but coming from one side of the field rather than being an official in the middle of the field. And then I also found it interesting that the article quoted, I think, one source who came out with a report, and the source was Zurich Insurance Company. Mm -hmm. And then they also quoted another executive, and that executive was from Swiss Re. Yep. So I think this article and this term of social inflation was probably a bit of a biased article. And I would also say that social inflation, I don't see that being the case here. What I do see it being the case is it allows the ability for someone to access funding, whether it's a law firm or a plaintiff, it allows the playing field to be a bit more evened out. David F. or Goliath, which I found interesting is the title of your show. And, and it really is um, a big part of what we're doing. And it evens out the playing field so that social inflation, it's not created, but what I think is eliminated is more so the defense or the insurance companies actually suppressing the fair amounts that should be compensated to these plaintiffs that have been on the wrong end of an accident or of an action where there's liability and there's clear liability. So I would disagree with that article as, as I think you did oh. and you do as well. And particularly from yeah. mm -hmm. where it's coming from. And then some other thoughts that came to mind when they say sort of like nuclear settlement, I think they use that term nuclear. And when folks like yourselves and some of the peers that you were referencing, types of cases that we all are involved in, where they have these significant injuries. For instance, I don't know if you've seen recently, there's a great documentary. It's educational. It's actually, it, it shakes you a bit when you watch it, but there's a documentary on Apple TV called Still, and it's about Michael J. Fox. Oh, yeah. I heard I heard a lot about it. You actually, last time I went out with you, you mentioned it. Yeah. And if you, when you watch that, it's a documentary about him being diagnosed with Parkinson's at 29 mm -hmm. and the progression of his life on a sort of downward slope, as we all know of. But when you watch that, I would sort of suggest someone watches that and then they're going to see the cases that maybe you and I are involved with, whether it's a Camp Lejeune situation or someone where someone has Parkinson's. You can't tell me any amount of money that they get awarded from someone where there's clear liability and now they have Parkinson's from, say, contaminated water, that the settlement is nuclear. After you watch that and see what these people live with, no, I mean, I always took offense to nuclear verdicts. The nuclear verdicts are supported by the fact these are catastrophic injuries. Find me a person who would trade their life to have Parkinson's disease, suffer a neurological deficit that degrades over time to where you're a, on the outside, you're a shell of what you were. You can't control your outside. You can't control your motor functions, but your brain is still intact and working. You're trapped inside your own body. Yeah. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of money for any of these catastrophic injuries. Yeah. So the social inflation term, I don't, I don't agree with. And as you just pointed out, and I mentioned as well, nuclear settlement or nuclear verdict, when we're talking about people's lives changing permanently, 
in mm -hmm. sometimes in a six second period. There's nothing, as far as I'm concerned, as, as a nuclear verdict. Social inflation was a made-up term, term of art that was coined by the Defense Research Institute. I know maybe they copied Warren Buffett or Carbon his thoughts, but mm -hmm. they've been championing that thought for a while now. Take great offense to the fact that, one, the very study that they published, they published, was never published in an academic journal, never subject to peer review, which is the gold standard for any study. There's no proof that litigation or third-party litigation funding actually increases nuclear verdicts. I think nuclear verdicts are nuclear verdicts. Catastrophic injuries are catastrophic injuries. Those cases are going to resolve what they're going to resolve for. I think it just allows more law firms to get in the game and more lawyers to have the ability to, if you will, even up the score, create a fair match against the insurance company, have the same type of resource that the insurance defense companies are coming in with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would also add that you could argue that litigation finance actually increases the value of the case by the following way. Let's say we work with a law firm that has, call 20 attorneys. Sure. And 20 attorneys in that law firm, you know this as well as anyone, but that law firm could have 700 cases on that docket. Mm -hmm. And to litigate a case is expensive, as you know. Yes. And depending upon where we're talking, I mean, it, in Los Angeles County, you know, we'll see attorneys spend $350,000, $400,000 a case in preparing the cases for trial. Maybe South Florida is $200,000, $250,000. But the point is, if you use that example and you say, okay, law firm A, that on the surface, we're thinking this is a great law firm. They have a great track record of results and verdicts. And now they, they come to us and, and have a conversation about funding. And you're scratching your head and say, well, why are they coming to us? And then you start doing some basic math and you say 700 cases. Let's use the low end, 200,000 a case. 700 cases, 200,000 a case, $140 million. Look at that public school education. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that that law firm doesn't necessarily have $140 million sitting in the bank doesn't mean they're not an incredible law firm. Sure. It's just their business model does not, say, spit out having cash balances all year. They're working on contingency. They pay out money to partners. Mm -hmm. And this capital allows them not only to litigate the cases, but it puts them in the mindset of, we don't need to allocate and say we could only spend on expert witnesses on this budget. We say to them, you know what? Don't use the best or the cheapest local expert witness. Find the best expert witness you can in the country. And the difference in that, it's going to be $4,000, $5,000. The delta that that will provide in terms of increased value is exponentially higher than the cost, mm -hmm. even if there is interest. So it's a really interesting sort of concept on the litigation finance and how it helps the law firms preparing cases, but most importantly, increases the value from what we've seen because they're able to source the best expert witnesses and, and really prepare these trials to the best of their ability and with some more resources. Your average consumer doesn't get that. So shoestring budget brings shoestring results. Getting a case ready for trial, hiring a nurse, let's just say a typical spine surgery case, but a catastrophic one, having the neurosurgeon come in, having the, you know, the neuroradiologist come in for a full day, having um, your demonstrative aids, your exhibits, having to focus group the case, 
maybe flying up to uh, Duke University and spending a day with David Ball and Artemis. We've done that now twice, and that cost us over $150,000 each time. We got great results. Mm-hmm. Stan got $6.7 million verdict in his last one. That wasn't even nuclear. I don't think, I think the definition of nuclear is probably $20 million north, so we're not quite that level yet, but mm-hmm. that costs a lot of money. Had we not spent the money and done it on a fraction, we would have seen probably a, a maybe a million and a half, $2 million and left $4 million on the table, which is why I always laugh when I see these huge results. Like, yeah, you got $10 million, but how much did you leave on the table? That doesn't always tell me everything. Those numbers are sometimes often misleading. Right. But I guess an issue we skipped over is your traditional bank will not lend this type of money. They look at a portfolio like um, a Dolman Law Group, for instance. And um, I know we've had many discussions. I've kind of looked at you as a mentor in terms of our finances because before you, I never looked at the idea of having a liquidity models and bringing somebody in that actually understands this. I was just going off the height, the hope, the dream, and the assumption that if I had enough cases, I'd be able to pay off my debt. Truth is, we borrowed over $10 million to scale our firm. And when I went to the bank and originally borrowed money, and it was, uh, I think it was $1 million a credit line, they looked at me a year later and they said, what do you have? And we went through our entire portfolio and they're like, they're used to companies coming in with widgets, right. inventory that they can seize, they can take, mm-hmm. they can secure against their debt um, or against the money that they lent out, which would be our debt. They can't seize the case. They can't take the case. The case is essentially, and it's weird to say this, but it's essentially worthless. Our inventory means nothing to a bank. When I sat there at the meeting, I was dumbfounded. I'm like, wait, you guys don't can understand this. I have, and I can curse on my podcast, Casey, this is what we're allowed to do. I have this many <laughs> cases and you're telling me that I didn't get anything for the past year. And they're like, when do you plan on paying that off? And I'm like, well, we told you when we borrowed the money is for mass torts. We have all of these cases here. It's going to take three to five years. And they're like, well, we got a problem. I'm like, this was explained to you. It's actually an email. Here's the email. I wrote this all to you. And they're like, <laughs> we were able to work out a deal. But the point is that banks don't lend out that type of money on personal injury cases, portfolios, or single events. They just, they don't understand the model of contingency fee. Yeah. And from what we hear from yourself and others in the business, a lot of that also accelerated or that change or that decrease in, in lending from banks after, you know, 07, 08 in the financial crisis and you know, mm-hmm. Dodd-Frank and the ability for banks to lend versus contingency valued assets, as you said, that's exactly what you're showing them when you show them your balance sheet and you show them that docket of 700 cases, which you I know could be worth three, $400 million. But in their lens, that's not how they see it. If they don't see 45,000 plus 55,000 equals 100,000 in a checking account at a bank, not that they're not better and smarter than us, but that's just the way they look at it. And they're not allowed to fund as much or loan as much, if at all, on the contingency valued assets since 08. It's impacted a lot of the law firms in terms of sourcing capital. But that allowed us to scale and that allowed us to advertise and allowed us to, um, and we're not huge advertisers, we're not all over television, radio, but we have a robust digital website. We have a footprint around both coasts of Florida. And a lot of times we take cases from some of the big boys, like whether it's Morgan and Morgan, who and I, I know those guys very well, but a lot of the big TV firms we're taking the cases from and maybe not Morgan, but I would say that we do a better job than most of television law firms in terms of servicing our clients. And many of these firms never litigate. Not Morgan. They do a good job with least trial work. Mm-hmm. But many of these firms have never seen a courtroom. Mm-hmm. I think we provide access to a number of clients that never were at least too unsophisticated to realize. And that's not knocking them. They just understand the industry of the game that had they picked a different lawyer, they would never have resolved their case for what they resolved it for. It's not that we did anything that amazing. 
It's that we provide them access to a lawyer who actually tries cases and litigates cases. It's an interesting point you mentioned because that's one of the points that early on, you know, when priority was started and GFO asset management, the investment management arm, and one of the topics that was sort of socialized within the group was when we talk about, well, we'd like to work with highest quality lawyers and law firms because, you know, those should attract the highest quality cases, you know. What does it mean to be a high quality lawyer or law firm? And one of those factors that was discussed often, particularly from the lawyers in the office, were lawyers that tried cases. Mm-hmm. And someone might say to you that, well, lawyers that try cases, you know, there's a school of thought a case goes to trial, gets in the hands of a jury, and it's 50 50 at that point. But at the same time, as I think you were referencing earlier, when the defense is aware that the plaintiff's attorney is an attorney that's gone into court, that's tried cases, tried cases successfully, mm-hmm. I think that gives them a little bit different mindset about how far they're going to look to pursue this instead of reaching settlement. So I'm sure there's tons of attorneys out there that's business, as you said, doesn't really go into courtrooms and, and settle every case. And that might be a great business model for them and, and, and everyone. But I think your point is spot on in the sense that attorneys that have shown the ability to go to court, there's an increased value to that case and 1, to that settlement and that resolution value. Yeah. Insurance companies hate one thing. I say it often enough is that they hate spending money. Mm-hmm. The lawyer, you could be the world's worst trial lawyer. You're still better than the guy down the block who's never tried a case or even litigated a case because they're going to have to spend money. They're going to have to hire experts. They're going to have to outsource that case to, instead of having in-house counsel, probably outside counsel, bigger firm, especially if the damage is warranted. It may not make that one case. You don't know. It's unpredictable. You're putting it in a jury's hands. Who knows what will happen? But it makes the rest of your portfolio worth a lot more money. Absolutely. It gets around. Defense Research Institute publishes their information. All the insurance companies know which firms try cases. Are we the best trial lawyers in Florida? No. You can name a number of guys, and a lot of them are affiliated with you that are better. Are we good? Yeah. Between Stan and I, have we tried and first shared over 120 cases between the two of us? Yeah. Do insurance companies know that? And do we get a higher value than most other law? Most, not all. And I want to be very careful when I say that. Mm-hmm. Can't promise results per the Florida bar rules, but what I can say is my experience. And I have picked many juries on many types of cases, and we're not afraid to take a case to trial. And um, that keeps the insurance company honest. Mm-hmm. And they know at the very worst that are they fearing me the same way they might fear John Romano? No. But are they saying, Dolan Law Group, these guys are absolutely out of their minds and they're going to go try the case and they're capable of it and they're not, they're definitely competent? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that makes, that puts a little bit of fear into the insurance company. Not fear that we may spike a nuclear verdict, you never know. Most of our cases are not nuclear, but they're going to have to now spend money. They're going to have to retain experts. It becomes um, a war, a war of attrition almost with the insurance company every single time we're involved. Yeah. But you guys also stand in yourself that humbleness or the, the way that you describe yourselves. And uh, when you say, you know, there's other attorneys out there that might be better than us, whether that's true or not. And I know that you're in the upper echelon, despite your humbleness. That said, that sort of chip on your shoulder and that fear of failure and that, that work ethic is greatly appreciated here uh, whenever we talk. But I think that you see that when you look around and you say, you know, there's no accident for their success. You know, Stan and Matt, look at the growth in their firm. There's no accident. It's because of that work. It's because they don't sit there and acknowledge, yes, we tried those cases and we won. 
they're fearing the next case that they're going to try and they're working like it's their first game as coach. And, you know, some of our friends, you and I uh, have some mutual friends in the state of Alabama. And last year, yeah, of course. Ben and myself went down and we went to one of the Alabama football games and this particular lawyer is a great friend, great attorney. Are we talking about Brett, Brett Turnbull? We can talk about him. I've actually referred a case to him. I know how good he is. He's phenomenal. Yeah. He's a great lawyer, great person. Mm-hmm. You know, he checks the box of greatness in a lot of different areas. And we went down to the game and we were standing on the field in Alabama's pregame for an hour or so. And Nick Saban was walking around tense, focused, like he had never won a game before in his life. I'm always reminded of that when I hear folks like yourself that have been successful and don't talk about it. You don't feel the need to let people know how smart you are. You just feel the need to work your tail off for the next case instead of looking in the rearview mirror. It's always impactful in me when I'm hearing that from folks. I hate the word luck. I've never cringed when you speak. Um, You're one of my favorite people to listen to. I almost cringed earlier when you were describing your history and you mentioned the word luck. You were lucky from, you said that twice. I'm like, eh, luck is opportunity meets uh, hard work. I don't think you, if you had multiple successes, a one-off is luck. We could say that. That's mm-hmm. just happenstance. Mm-hmm. When you have success over time and repeated success, that's not luck. Because mm-hmm. that, I think that's misleading to everyone out there that anyone could just be lucky and be Casey Guard. No, not everyone can be lucky and be where we are, what we did. I mean, I worked my ass off to build up this website day and night. Everybody thought I was a, a complete effing loser. And I was sitting there writing blogs and had my imagined people feel like you have your imaginary friend you're blogging with and doing all this. I'm like, fuck off. This is going to pay off over time. Everyone else is throwing money into the phone book. I couldn't afford to be on the front or back cover or let alone even have a page in there. We just starting out, we had like a nickel and dime budget, but I sat on the internet and realized that was my way of leveling the playing field for all the big boys because it didn't matter how much money back then, at least, how much money you spent on Google. Now it does. Google monetizes everything, but we were able to get top five rankings for thousands of terms and that built my business. And it wasn't, there's nothing to do with luck. Just where everybody else was out screwing around, I was home doing work. I was getting this stuff done. I was getting up early and I was writing blog after blog after blog. We'll also do my work on my cases and eventually to the point where I quit almost, I wouldn't call it say quit being a lawyer. I still work on five or 10 of the biggest cases in the office. I work with Stan, but I think Stan does that to humor me and make me feel more important. Mostly I do digital marketing all day and that's what I found is my success. Your success is private equity. You understand that game inside out. It's not like, it's not luck. Another thing about luck is I feel that it's very important who you surround yourself with. And Mm -hmm. when I started out in the business, I started out at Morgan Stanley and it was, Morgan Stanley was an amazing firm and I'm grateful that I spent just shy of 10 years there. But I found in in some of the departments at the time, there would be the senior person or the, the senior managing director. And it felt like they were surrounding themselves with the team that they had built, surrounding themselves with yes people, people afraid to challenge them. And this way, they would keep their role and, and be senior, where I said to myself at that point, I said, you know what? I know I want to manage money. I know I want to build and start a hedge fund. I want to manage a hedge fund. But some of the observations I had from those early days were, I want to surround myself with good, smart people that challenge me, that push me. In fact, I used to always joke with people. I used to say at our research meetings that we'd have every day at, at our hedge fund, Calypso Capital Management, I always used to say I was the dumbest guy in the, in the research meeting. I said, we would hire the smartest people that could push us and we would learn from. And 
that plays a part in being lucky. It's you get in the in the right place at the right time as a function of who you're surrounding yourself with, what opportunities you're pursuing, or the way you're going about pursuing them. You giving up some of your social time and going out and getting crazy on a Friday night, maybe because you're looking for cases. And, and people, when people say to you, Matt, you're crazy. I used to say to myself, I know I'm doing it right now. When, when the masses are telling you that the way that you're doing things are crazy, you always want to sort of run away from where the consensus is, right? Yeah. They say, what's the saying? Sheeps get slaughtered. Always. <laughs> you know, where the sheep, sheep is going, I run the opposite direction I always have. <laughs> yeah. I guess, what was it? Uh, Wayne Gretzky used to say, you want to skate the way the puck is going, not where it is. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Being everyone, being, I would say being good, part of being good is having a little luck. And we're always, everyone is always fortunate at some point. And just on the opposite, it's another thing that I've tried to do in this business and, and any business is managing, especially in our hedge fund business, managing the peaks and valleys is just as important as anything. Because when things are going just down a smooth sort of straightaway, that's fine. That's easy to manage. But the peaks and valleys of business, whether it's law practice or a big hedge fund, you get to the point where if you don't understand that in those valleys, you're not as dumb as you feel. You're not as dumb as you think you are. you got to stay the course, stay focused. In addition, in the peaks, you're not as smart as you think you are. You just you have a good run and you, luck is on your side or you know you have some tailwinds. But the ability to manage those peaks and valleys and cause to be more of a straightaway for the, for the whole journey has been a really important discipline for me. And the better I got at that, I felt the better I was able to sort of operate in business and be more clear thinking so that the emotional part is extracted uh, so that you're not emotional when you're making important business decisions. I like that. You know, one of my superpowers is my ability to regurgitate and pretend like it's my own original thought. So I'm going to pass that off and sound pretty smart. And I mean, I really do believe that life is never as good as you think it is and never as bad as it is either. Yeah. It's more of just maintaining, but I'd never really thought about in that context and extracting emotion from decisions because yeah. the worst decisions I've ever made is when I thought with emotion, not with reason and was deliberate in my decision-making. Well, there's, a, there's certain professions we take on and I would say being a high-profile trial attorney fits into that where you put yourself out there where on the successes, you're almost looked at as you're a rock star, you're you know a, an incredible athlete, you're an incredible lawyer, you're, it's what have you done for me lately? Mm -hmm. And that super high from when you succeed, like I said, it's easy for that to sort of take over your thoughts and you start believing in your own BS, you know, <laughs> or you start believing that every single case is going to have that same outcome and you might not need to prepare as much because you're the expert already. Or if we print the, you know, we're up 32% in a year and then going into the next year, we better get back to the mentality of, no, January 1st, we're at zero right now. We need to start again. And get that sort of mentality back, like you said, the chip on your shoulder. These other lawyers, these other hedge fund managers, these other professionals are better, smarter than me. That feeds my engine, and, the, and I see it feeds your engine also. That's that gasoline that moves that car forward. All day long. Yeah. I want to be you, Casey. I want to be, want to be good looking and <laughs> successful. So winding it down, and we're going to be done in a few minutes. Take me through what is the difference. I kind of understand it, but not fully 
between a hedge fund and now you have Casey Guard Family Office, which I would assume you manage individual wealth for certain individuals while also maintaining priority responsible legal funding. What's the difference between a hedge fund and a family office? I know we're going a little off topic, but I just never really understood the answer sure. to that. So I have an opportunity here. So when we when we started our hedge fund, I was lucky, as we've just mentioned. You know, I, I was had a I was my career path at Morgan Stanley was going vertical, and things were great. I had a desire to manage money. I knew I could. Mm-hmm. A lot of people back then used to talk about it, and but I used to find a lot of people wouldn't give that up. It's comfortable fitting suit when you go into work every day and you know you're a senior person at Morgan Stanley and you're earning a good amount of compensation. But I knew there was a different calling. I knew what I wanted to do and I knew I could do it. And I started a hedge fund and I was lucky because there was someone very significant in the business that the second time he met me said, if you're willing to start your own fund, I'd like to be investor number one. And met me twice and wrote a check for $50 million to invest. This person had a lot of faith in me. So that was one of my lucky moments. Why do you have a lot of faith in you? We had interacted in my role at Morgan Stanley being senior. Uh You know, I think from some of his colleagues and partners at his firm, he had heard about what they thought were some talents on my side in terms of my understanding of companies, financial statements, trading, the ability to take on risk ahead of pretty big stomach or big, pretty big appetite for risk. And he just had a lot of faith in what I was probably capable of doing. So your skill set and your intestinal fortitude for risk was what attracted him. Yes. That's not a lot. That's not a lot, Casey. Casey, <laughs> luck is winning the lottery. It's not so, <laughs> luck has to always be defined as a one-off, meaning yeah. something that is unlikely to be repeated. It would be nice to win the lottery though. So I saw, I was passing the, uh, I was in the, actually in the gas station today. Actually, I don't know what I would do though, because I enjoy doing it. Today I saw it was a billion too. So that would be a good one to win. Yeah, then I'd be a candidate for the Casey Guard family fund. <laughs> but nevertheless, so a hedge fund essentially is we had investors mm-hmm. that were qualified investors, mostly institutions, but you know, have a certain level of assets or a certain level of wealth. And, and we would manage that money in a fund for us when I mentioned equity long short. That was our strategy. So we would invest in equity or equity is a fancy term for stocks. We would either invest in stocks that we thought were going higher, or we would also invest against stocks or invest that we make a bet that the stock was going down for some reason if we thought there was some you know, damaging fundamental impacts on their business. So a hedge fund is really, we were investing in both directions for certain stocks to go up, certain stocks to go down. But the point is, that fund structure was one where we had outside investors. We had these institutions that invested with us, this ultra high net worth person that gave us a significant amount of money to start. And over the next 15 years, we produced some really good consistent returns. And that's where the assets that we were managing grew to you know, a pretty large number. At that point, I decided... I'm going to return the the investor capital, and then the capital that was left in the fund was internal capital, all my family's capital. And we converted that business after we returned the investor capital to what's called a family office. So it, it went from a hedge fund structure, which had external investors, to a family office. And that's what I've been managing for most of the last nine years. 
and investing in you know private companies, public companies, and more so privates. The public's, like I said, has become a, a lesser part of what I've done. And now the, the litigation finance business, though, to me is, it's interesting. It, it's almost like we are at the, the forefront of creating an asset class. And that article, I think, also alluded to that there's more capital coming into litigation finance, and that's driving this so-called you know, social inflation. But the institutional capital that's coming into litigation finance is coming into an area of litigation finance that funds and invests in commercial litigation, business-to-business disputes, things like IP infringement. Mm-hmm. That's not what you and I really do. We're on the other half of the business, which is personal injury litigation. And yes, you know, we might focus on high-value personal injury litigation, but we haven't seen much institutional capital come into that, and which is a good thing for us. But it is, it's a capital-intensive business as you want to grow. And We've embraced it, and we think it's just a really interesting risk-reward profile. And like I mentioned earlier, the added benefit is you get to work with not only great attorneys, but you're working on cases where you feel great being on the same side of the field as a veteran who unfortunately had contaminated water in their system, and now they have a horrific disease or families traveling in a car and an 18-wheeler speeding and you know the driver has been working you know 100 hours that week and, and shouldn't be working that amount of hours in a week and two folks two out of the five don't make it one or two have traumatic brain injury i mean it's horrible that those things happen but it's eye-opening that all of these things that happen where people's lives change in a six-second period go on where in my prior professional life, when I was watching asset prices move all day, I, didn't, I wasn't paying attention to these things as much. And it's really educational. It's really an incredible business, the things that you learn, the things that go on every single day in the world where people's lives are changed in a nanosecond permanently. Said it perfectly. Yeah. You know, to sum up, I think third-party litigation funding, obviously it's here to stay. Private equity is here to stay. Never had a problem with it. I think it levels the playing field. Shitty cases are not getting funded anyway. So I think there's really no merit to that argument. To wrap up, um, you know, you texted me the other night that I owed you, I think it was like $4.18 after you shorted me on a position where we made a, I think it was like a $5 bet on the Yankees winning 95 games this season. Where the fuck did you arrive at that number? Like I, I sat there and I tried to crunch the math and try to prorate the math. Where'd you come up with 4.18? I'm, and in these usury terms, you cited back to me that it's, you know, we're not governed by any usury law. You keep multiplying six cents on this bet every single week, which by the way, for those out there, we bet $5 on the Yankees winning 95 games. Let's not make this into something crazy, but I'm just trying to understand and get to the bottom of this. The one time I have Casey where he's not being held in 46 different directions. People are always all over you. So I got a chance to actually ask you this question. Where'd you come up with this nonsense math? I was actually trying to do something generous and say, instead of you paying me five, then maybe there's a discounted version at this point of the season. And I just said to myself, (laughs) at this point, the Yankees have a 15% chance of winning 95 games. And let's take 15% off of $5 and came to, I don't know, $4 and 25 cents. And then I said, because it's Matt Dolman, let's discount that a little bit further and give him the insider price. So we got the 418 from 425. And you declined. Yeah. Too bad that you were traveling. You've been so busy traveling. I don't think you saw my last text where I told you that Terrence Crawford, I don't know if you're a big boxing fan, was going to knock out 
Errol Spence, which no one thought. And by the way, I'm wrong more often than I'm right. I'm wrong so often. But I'm going to, boxing is my one thing, so I'm going to hold my head up high this week. Unfortunately, he didn't take me up on that because then I, I could be almost even now. You know, there were, there were two things about that offer that I noticed. One was... I love to watch you think. I love to hear it. Just tell me. <laughs> Again, I, I try to stick to what I know. And I love sports, but I don't know a ton about boxing. So I try to stick to what I know best. So I figured stay away from boxing. And secondly, I did notice your offer was for a significantly higher amount of money on the boxing match than the baseball. So my little pea brain started saying, well, he wanted to have $5 on baseball. And now he's coming to me with this other offer with significantly higher amount. He must be setting me up. So I figured, you know what? <laughs> the red light just went up and said, this guy's too sharp for me. He's a sharp and I better back away. Let me stick with my winner on the Yankees, which by the way, you mentioned 421. It's at 429 as we speak is what I think would be. Fine. Why don't we just, the deal is double it or press it to zero on the, uh, and this is fair, raise our game and a half back. I'm betting on the fact that Glass now is just, I mean, he's just AL pitcher of the month. McClanahan can't stay at this rate of pitching so poorly. And he just picked up that pitcher from Cleveland. I think the Rays beat the Orioles for the AL East. That's a sport you know better than anyone. Come on. What do you think? You think do you think the Rays are going to pull it out or do you think the Orioles are taking it? I think the Rays are going to because the Orioles have had some injuries recently. And uh, I think. Fine. I'll go even crazier. This is even crazier. Yeah. I think the Padres take a. That's probably a wild card spot, but I think the Padres advance to the National League Championship Series. Padres to the National. That's ballsy. You have to say that. That is. So I guess you're asking for an offer on that. Because you got Tatis, Machado. They're all on fire right now. What is that? Bogarts had three hits yesterday. They had 11 runs. I mean, this is an offense. So given that they're peaking at the right time, is that an even mm-hmm. money bet? Or are you looking to take odds? Or You name the bet. I'm, I think the Padres are doing that. I'll get I need to get myself out of this $4.21 hole I'm in with the Casey Guard family office. I'll give you two to one on $5. Fine. That the Padres do not make the National League Championship Series. Okay. You heard it here, folks. All right. It's been recorded. <laughs> proof of this bet. I feel good. Plus, no one's collecting for at least another two months, so I feel good about <laughs> that this. That sounds great. I have plenty of time to disappear from town, disconnect my phone, and block your phone number. Most importantly, thank you for having me on. I, hey, I appreciate it. Listening to a bunch of past episodes, and it's it's great. It's really an interesting podcast to listen to. You cover a lot of interesting topics, and like I said, thank you again for having me on. You become a good friend over the past uh, year, year and a half, and you know I, I cherish that. I don't have uh, somebody out there who can give me advice the way you do, and um, just love having you around. So, pleasure having you on, Casey. Sounds good. Thank you for educating everyone who listens, all four people about uh, a kid, by the way. We actually, one of our videos has had 21,000 views. Wow. Another one only had 700, so I can't try to figure that out. But appreciate having you on, um, and thank you, and I wish everyone out there a, a great day. Thank you very much, and have a blessed day. Terrific. Send my best to, to Stan, Becky, and everyone else on the team. Will do. All right, be well, Matt. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N-Law.com. Or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only 
and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.